0: Well, we're continuing our our study through the book of Revelation, and we're coming very near to the end of our, our study now. The chapter we're going to be looking at this morning, chapter 20, and the remainder, we looked at the first six verses last week, looking at the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ. An incredible period of time that's detailed for us in Scripture. And of course, we said last time, and we'll talk about a few of those things in a moment, but a lot of people would reject it. They say that... It's just allegory. It means something other than this. It's like, But they never really give us a good explanation as to what they think it does mean. What we're going to see in a moment as we go through this chapter are three major events. We're going to see, first of all, that Satan is released and the world is going to be plunged into its final climactic battle. And this will be at the end of the millennium, after the thousand years reign of Jesus. Then we're going to see the end of this current order of things. Everything is going to get dissolved. Everything that we think of as real now will be gone. And we'll realise that that which is real is not the things that we tend to look at and focus on. God sees things very differently than the way we look at things. And then the final thing we're going to see in this chapter is Judgment Day. The, the day that people have often spoken about and we have had films made with this title and all sorts of things. The world doesn't have a clue about Judgment Day and what it really means, what it entails. So we're going to look at that and look at the details of that in just a moment. And that's going to lead us then into a place where we can move into chapter 21, God willing, next week, and we'll look at the eternal order, what's going to come after this period of time, after this heavens and this earth and so on. But as we always do and should always do when we come to God's word, let's just bow our hearts and just commit this time of study to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and powerful. And Lord, your word tells us that it has the power to change us, to transform our thinking. And Lord, we ask that you do that this morning. Lord, help us to lay aside any preconceived ideas and just be open to your word. Lord, speak to us, we pray, because we want to grow. We want to know more about Jesus. Lord, we want to know more about these things. And Lord, be prepared and equipped, but Lord, not just because we want to connect the dots together. But because Lord we want these things to impact and change us, to give us a greater love and appreciation of our Saviour. As so we just give you this time now, take my words and use them for your glory and your purposes in our hearts and lives. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so picking up verse seven and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. So this is where we're starting again. We just looked at the first six verses of the chapter last week, looking at this period of time that we refer to as the millennium. Again, that word just comes from the Latin, "mill," meaning a thousand, and "annum," meaning uh, years, a thousand years, millennium. Um, so six times we're told that there's a period of a thousand years. I mean, God couldn't have made it clearer if he wanted to. Um, but notice here that the timing of this is now, it's completely in God's control. It's God who allows Satan to be released at this point. Seemingly God is fulfilling his own timetable, and he specifically allows this period of a thousand years. Now, some are not sure why that is. One of the suggestions, a conjecture that's put forward, is that if you look at the details the Bible gives, we've got roughly 2,000 years from the creation of the world up until the time of Abraham. We've then got another period of 2,000 years from the time of Abraham up until the time of Jesus. Of course, we know that there's been roughly 2,000 years from Jesus until now. So that makes a total of 6,000 years. And we've got this period of the millennium, 1,000 years again, giving us seven periods of 1,000 years. And some have just postulated and asked the question, and partly due to that verse we have in Peter where we're told that to the Lord a day is as a thousand years. Now we've got to be careful we don't make doctrine of that, because what Peter is saying is God is outside of time. God is totally outside of time. We tend to focus on you know time, it's such a big thing for us, but God is outside of time and I'm very grateful for the person that once said to me, God is never in a hurry. How often are we in a hurry and we trying to, you know, get things done and God's never in a hurry. And the possibility here is that God has laid out this plan so that we've had 6,000 years equating to the six days and then the seventh day of rest and the seventh period of a thousand years being this time when Jesus will rule and reign on the earth. We'll see. Again, we don't need to make doctrine of it. It's interesting. One verse that possibly lends us some we'll thought to that is in the book of Hosea. If you want to turn in your Bibles in Hosea chapter 5, actually going into chapter 6. Uh, it's an interesting prophecy. It's a prophecy that is speaking of Israel at the time that Jesus will uh, be almost ready to come back just before the second coming. <coughs> Israel will be in their predicament. Uh, the armies of Antichrist will be gathered together against them. And, alright, here we are, Hosea chapter 5 ends, and really it's it's God speaking, but of course we understand it to be Jesus in the context, I will go and return to my place. I mean, when did God ever leave his place at the time of the incarnation, when God came to earth in the person of Jesus? I will go return to my place, till they, speaking of Israel, acknowledge their offence. The fact that they rejected Jesus as a messiah. And it says, in their affliction, they will seek me. The word we have translated the King James is early. The real import of that is earnestly. That's how they're going to seek God. And we read a number of other scriptures, Zechariah 12 and so on, that tell us that when Israel realized that Jesus is their Messiah, that all along they've rejected the one they should have been receiving, they will weep. But they will be restored. And verse 6 then says, come and let us return unto the Lord. He has torn us and he will heal us. He is smitten and he will bind us up. And this is the interesting verse. Verse 2, after two days he will revive us and in the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Now it's interesting because we've got this mention of days here. Now we know that Israel have been uh, smitten, torn for more than two literal days. How long, roughly, have they been smitten and torn? How long have they been in blindness? As we read about Jesus in Luke nineteen, pronounced blindness on Israel. Well, they've been in blindness for nearly two thousand years. Kind of equating to two days. How long is it that they will live in His sight? A thousand years so you have that model laid down here where you again have a day for a thousand years. So it's, a, it's an interesting thought. Don't need to make too much of it. Uh, and by the way, that has nothing to do with the days of creation. Some people try to say, well, therefore the days of creation must be a thousand years each. No, that doesn't work. Because if we have days being a thousand years, we have 500 years between morning and evening and all the vegetation would die in 500 years of night time. So that doesn't work. Um, verse 2. Uh, sorry. no. no uh, uh, in verse 2, we're told that Satan was bound. And in verse 7, we're told now that he's released. Again, just pointing to the fact that this is a real period of time. It's not symbolic. Because to symbolically bind Satan and symbolically to release him, what would that mean? Now, this is a, a real situation where Satan has his ability to move completely restricted. We're told that he's put into this bottomless pit. Um, and that that pit was sealed in verse 3. So he couldn't get out. There's a very clear description given in those opening verses we looked at last week. You know, it's clearly he's been imprisoned, unable to operate in the realm of mankind for this entire period of time. The interesting thing is, as we'll see in a moment, sin is still a possibility. Isaiah alludes to that as well. See, any suggestion that this has already taken place or is currently taking place, some people would argue we're in that millennial period at the moment. It, it's, it doesn't make any, any, any sense whatsoever. When Satan is bound, it will be unlike anything the world has ever known. You know, for you and I, all we've ever known is a world where Satan is at large and roaming and, and so on. And we'll talk a little bit more about uh, his location, position and so on in a short while. But, you know, to have Satan totally bound and removed from this world, to have this world restored to the way it was in the beginning... I mean, it really will be, like anything, unlike anything we've ever known. It'll be an incredible period of time. Uh, and again, just to highlight, you know, six times we're told it's a period of a thousand years. Um, you know, God could have communicated to us in any way he chose what he was trying to say. And yet six times he tells us this. In Isaiah, his thoughts are above our thoughts, we're told. You know, God was not struggling to express what he meant. And 1 Corinthians 14.33, we're told God is not the author of confusion. If God had meant something other than this, he could have very clearly said it. And it's so obvious, it just fits everything very nice and neatly in the plan. And we read verse 8 going on, and So Satan then, after his release, shall go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four quarters of the earth. Uh, some people jump on this and then say, look, the Bible's wrong, because it's suggesting the earth's flat. No, because we speak about the four cardinal points of the compass, don't we? North, south, east, and west. When we say that, we're not saying that we're not denying the curvature of the Earth. We're not denying that the Earth is a globe, and so on. And nor is Scripture. It's just a a way of expressing the four regions of the Earth or the four cardinal points as we have them. Um, So Satan's going to go out to the four corners of the Earth to try and deceive any that he can. In an attempt to march against Jesus and against Jerusalem. But interestingly, we've got these other two characters I mentioned here. We're told Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle. The number of whom is as the sand of the sea. So clearly he's able to amass a very large army. It's, people just rally under a banner very, very quickly. I mean, we've seen that recently, haven't we? You know, with all the whole issue with the referendum and people on different sides of that that, uh, that fence, as it were. But you, you get somebody stating something, all of a sudden, people are following. And, and uh, there was there was one chap um, that decided he wanted London to be separated now from the UK, so London could remain part of the EU and London could be treated as a separate country. And he started this kind of crowdfunding page. And within a few hours he'd got a few thousand pounds and it started to grow and all of a sudden a day later he pulled it down and said, uh, kind of out in my depth, don't really know where we're going with this. But it was just interesting, I mean he hadn't thought it through. He even admitted that he was starting it as a kind of a, just a tongue in cheek, a bit of a joke. You know, I'm not saying he wasn't serious in what he was, the, the idea of what he was suggesting, um, but he had no real mechanism of bringing to pass the, the idea. And yet a load of people just jumped on the bandwagon. I thought, this is great. Let's, let's make London an independent country. But you see people will just jump on any bandwagon they see going. And I've got no doubt at this time, as Satan is released, yeah, the, the incredible thing is we've had a thousand years with Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth. And suddenly people are going to go, well, maybe it's time for a change. I you just, I can't understand the mindset when it's been as good as it will ever get on this earth. You've got the creator ruling, perfect justice. The world will be in peace. Even animals will be kind to each other. Children will not squabble and fight. Just, you know, hypothetically saying. Gog and Magog. Magog. Well, if we look back in scripture, uh, we're given a little bit of information about these characters. You can understand really what we're referring to in these verses in Revelation. Um, Magog was a son of Japheth. Japheth was a son of Noah, so Magog was Noah's grandson. After the time of the Tower of Babel, Magog's descendants moved off, as all the people of the earth did from that point. And they inhabited the southern steeps of Russia. So really inhabiting the area going from the Ukraine right across to the Great Wall of China. Hesiod, a Greek poet in the 8th century uh, B.C., were, wrote about these and spoke of the Magogians, uh, but he used their Greek name, which was the Scythians. That may be a name that you've heard from history. Um, Josephus, a Jewish historian, comments, says that Magog founded the Magogians, thus named after him, but were the, by, um, by the Greeks uh, were called Scythians. Um, it's, just, it's interesting, the uh, ancient writers used to refer to the Great Wall of China uh, as this Sud-Yagog, Magog is how they used to say it but it was ramparts of Gog and Magog so even the Great Wall of China they attributed to these individuals or the descendants of in Ezekiel we find a very interesting um, portion of prophetic scripture um, where these two individuals lead an ill-fated invasion of Israel and by the way that event could occur at almost any moment. It's a really interesting uh, portion of scripture to look at. You're looking at Ezekiel um, 38, uh, or 37, 38, that area. Um, it's just an incredible uh, portion. It just speaks of these nations ganging up against Israel, marching against Israel at a time when Israel is seemingly in some sort of peace. Uh, and it speaks about the islands of the world looking on. Now just as a, a technical point there, if there's islands at that point, this has to be before we get to the last part of tribulation, because at that point the islands flee away. Um, so I think this is something that could quite easily occur. You can read it in your, your own time. Particularly Ezekiel 38 uh, is the passage really you really want to look at, and it goes on to chapter 39 as well. Um, and it seems to describe a nuclear exchange. The details that are given are so precise. It speaks about people falling to the ground and uh, what's going to physically happen to them. Um, and the fact that there's this burial program and people are told not to uh, stand downwind of, of where they are um, because of the presumably the radiation and everything else. It's just an interesting uh, prophetic passage and it just speaks of this battle that's yet to come. So again, the descendants of Gog and Magog are going to clearly be involved in that. But just to highlight, in Matthew 25, when Jesus returns at the second coming, as we saw a few weeks ago, we were talking about this, he's going to judge the nations of the world. And those that are anti-Semitic are going to be destroyed at that point. So that kind of does beg the question, if we're not then dealing with the physical descendants at the end of the millennium, who are these characters going to be? And I think most commentators tend to feel that what we're looking at here is the spiritual power that has existed behind them. Okay, looking at a a kind of a map of these things, you've got Gog and Magog really coming all of this region up here. Okay, so the southern area of Russia going across towards China and so on. These other areas you're familiar with. These are the ancient names of these places uh, and so on. Myshek being kind of Turkey and so on. Goma, Germany, typically. um, obviously you've got Libya we're, we're familiar with and Cush the area of Egypt and so on um, so these nations are all going to gang up in Ezekiel 38 this is what we read about and come against Israel and it seems to be almost a rerun of this that is going to occur at the end of the millennium and it's incredible because these nations are going to set out with the intent of destroying Jesus it's uh, just, just breathtaking that they would have the audacity and they went up on the breadth of the earth Encompass the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And just before we, we move on from that, I just you know this is going to be one of those kind of scary moments in a sense from a worldly point of view. If you were dramatizing this as you see this multitude from around the world gathering together. And it kind of reminds me, as I was studying during the week, the situation that we read about in Second Kings. Second Kings chapter eighteen and nineteen, a good passage if you want to read when you get home. Speaks for Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a godly king. He's one of five good kings that we read about of the kings of Judah. And the Assyrian army are coming up and they've destroyed everything in their wake and they start to taunt Hezekiah, say, don't think your God can save you. You know, and they start talking about the way they've overthrown the other nations and they had done. And then they start speaking to the people and they kind of say, well, look, could you not speak to the people in Hebrew? Could you speak to them, you know? And they say, no, no, because we, we want the people to hear this. This is the Assyrians. And and they start making these boasts saying that God can't save you. And they start saying, look, we'll give you horses and chariots and you can put people on them if you think it will help you, but you're still going to fall to us. Well, Hezekiah goes to God. He just comes and, and seeks God. He has nothing else, nowhere else to go. You know, God in our lives sometimes does that with us. He gets to us, to us to a place where unless he comes through, there's no tomorrow. You know, Moses and the Red Sea... The Egyptian army one side, the people of Israel are about to lynch him. He cries out to God. And so often God allows us to get to those moments where it's, unless God does something here, it's all over. And the situation with Hezekiah was certainly like that. Naturally, there was nothing he could do. So he just trusted God. Trusted that God would deliver them. And you read that God sent an angel and 185,000 Assyrians mysteriously die. And by the way, people read the Bible and think that's just a a fictional thing. It's very interesting in some of Bill Cooper's books, he goes through looking at the secular records of that and how that's even attested to in the Assyrian records, how suddenly the army was mysteriously and dramatically reduced and it had a, a really knock-on effect. It kind of led to the downfall of Assyria as a nation, as a powerful nation as they were. They, they got subdued by the Babylonians from then on. So, very interesting. And I just say that because it's a very similar, it's almost like history being rerun again. But just as before, man doesn't learn anything from history. Uh, we've, we've heard and we, we see. Um, but here, we're told that this army come up, they compass about the saints and the city, speaking of Jerusalem, the beloved city, A fire comes down from God out of heaven and devoured them. That that was it, just just so simple. You know, these armies, they probably had their plans and got their weapons and, you know, how are you going to fight against God? Uh, Strangely, even us, we often try to fight against God. We we wrestle with him. Um, Jacob wrestled with him. How can you wrestle with God, really? Verse 10 says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. and shall be tormented day and night forever. Now just a couple of interesting things to pull out of this verse. First of all, the beast and the false prophet, you remember, before the millennium started, they were thrown into this lake of fire, which typically we refer to as hell. We need to be a little cautious in our understandings of these terms because in the Old Testament you have the word uh, translated uh, there as um, Sheol, or the pit, or sometimes the grave, but the grave more often than not refers to the physical grave as we would think of it. But certainly the pit, um, it speaks of people going down alive into the pit, people going down uh, into Sheol, and so on. Um, that is a term that we, that place also we refer to as hell. But Jesus makes it very clear that that place is a holding place, it's not the eternal lake of fire. The first two individuals to go into this lake of fire, which is the real hell, if you like, will be the beast and the false prophet. As I said, that occurs at the time of the second coming when Jesus comes back and they will be the first people to go there. But notice, a thousand years later, we're told that it's where the beast and the false prophet are. Not were thrown and got consumed or anything to suggest that, but it's where they are. The the implication is quite simple, that they are still alive and conscious. The Bible doesn't teach this idea that some put forward of annihilation, that it would just be over. No, no, no. These are there and they will eternally be suffering the wrath of God because of their rebellion against him, and particularly Satan. And again, Satan was this angelic being, we'll talk more in just a moment, And just to highlight as well, because we're all guilty, unfortunately, of the uh, concepts that came down from the Middle Ages, where you have this idea of Satan sitting on the throne in hell with his kind of pitchfork and all his minions gathered around him and so on, and, you know, dishing out orders. Satan does not rule in hell, okay? That's not his home. It's a a mistake that really, sadly, art and uh, certainly the the medieval period has kind of passed down to us. We're told a lot about Satan in Scripture. Um, first of all, that he was once this incredible created being, uh, lived in heaven, dwelt in heaven, had access to the coals of fire in front of the throne, and seemingly his worship, his title or his job role was as worship leader. He had literally musical instruments built into his uh, created being um, to worship God. We're told also in Ezekiel 28 that he was in Eden, So God allowed him to to come to this new world that he created. And as we've said before, Satan no doubt thought that this was all being created for him. And it was a very rude awakening, just like Haman in the book of Esther, when he realized that that blessing that the king was promising was going to be given to Mordecai and not to, to Haman. Well, Satan suddenly found out that this world that God was creating was going to be given to Adam, and that then led him to try and usurp adam 's position authority and so Satan then becomes the god of this world two corinthians four four tells us that for now Satan is the god of this world so satan doesn 't live in hell he 's not residing in hell for now his place of residence is this world he also told he 's a prince of the power of the air in ephesians two two so this whole sphere uh, that we have, the world, the atmosphere, and the moment, that's where Satan resides. Now, First Peter 5, verse 8, told, we're told very clearly, he walks about in the earth, he's got freedom of movement. But he also has access, seemingly, from what we read in the opening chapter of Job, to the throne of God. That he can go and present himself. And in Revelation 12, we're told that he's the accuser of the brethren. Seemingly, Satan continually goes before God. It's almost as if once a week they have a, a kind of a council meeting, and, and Satan just shows up. And accuses the saints before the throne. And for now, God unseemingly seemingly allowed that to be. But Jesus spoke prophetically in Luke 10, 18. He spoke of seeing heaven cast out of heaven like lightning. And that seems to be an event that will occur at the midpoint of the tribulation. Satan is cast out of heaven. and He's cast down to the earth. And we're told that he has great wrath knowing that he has just a short time. And from that point on, Satan has his access card to heaven taken away from him no longer is he allowed to go and present himself before God so Satan the adversary of man and by the way just to add something there as well we often get this false notion that we have God in one corner and Satan in another and they're locked in this kind of endless cosmic battle Or you know, I've seen a number of different pictures and ideas suggestions that you know it's Jesus fighting Satan no no Jesus dealt with Satan at the cross Satan's defeated. Satan's just, a, just an angel. Jesus is the creator. No, the, the word Satan, the name, means adversary. And Satan is our adversary, not Jesus' adversary. I mean, in one sense, he's the adversary of man, and Jesus, as man, obviously took on Satan and thoroughly defeated him. But Satan's our problem in that sense. And we need to be aware, as Peter says, that he's like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But we're told very clearly that if we resist him and draw near to God, then God will draw near to us. If we resist Satan, he will have to flee from us. He has no jurisdiction over us. We've been bought by the blood of Jesus. Verse 11, we carry on. And then we read, "And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. This is incredible. It seems to be that the awesomeness of the one that is sat upon the throne here. It's just so great that heaven and earth just cannot handle or contain it. As God is kind of revealed, it's almost, if you like, the curtain is pulled back and there is God, sat on his throne. And this earth just, dissolves, it just disintegrates in everything in it now we'll come back to some of those verses in a moment but I just want to just draw something to your attention because as you read through the Bible you'll find a number of verses such as this this is from Ecclesiastes 1.4 it says one generation passes away and another generation comes but the earth abides forever and so our critics will jump in straight away and say ah oh, look, contradiction because you've got one verse saying that the earth is going to pass away and here we're told that it's going to abide forever Psalm 78 verse 69, it says, He built His sanctuary like higher places, like the earth, which He has established forever. So there you go, another verse that tells you the earth is going to be established and remain forever. Psalm 104 verse 5 says, Speaking of God, that He laid the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed Forever. So people say, so we've got a real problem, we've got a contradiction. And this leads a number of people to suggest that just as the earth was destroyed in the days of Noah with the flood, cleansing it from sin back then, so the same is going to happen at the end of the millennium. And we're going to see this purging with fire or so on, they say, Uh, but earth is going to be renovated and it will continue forever. Now that is a view, or partly uh, believed by the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that the earth will be renovated. But that's not what the Bible teaches. How, how do we understand those verses? Well, firstly, just to draw your attention to Proverbs 18, 17, it says that he that is first in his own cause seems just, but his neighbor comes and searches him. In other words, quite simply, you know, the first one to state his case might seem right until someone else comes and presents their case. Any children, more than one child, more than one child, you'll know that that's the case because one of them will come and they'll present something to you. And it seems absolutely plausible. Until the other one comes and presents their case. And then you've got to try and figure out which one was right. You see, sometimes a bit more information can help clarify. And it's very much the case here. If you look at the, the Hebrew word in those verses a moment we looked at, the word is olam. And it just means the vanishing point. So when he's saying that the earth will abide forever, and that kind of idea is as far as we can see. Generally, the idea is time out of mind. We were driving down here this morning, and Amita said, Daddy, will you have this van forever? Now, I I don't think by that she meant, will you have it off into eternity? Of course, the answer is no. Another year would be good. But we use those same kind of ideas ourselves, and the Bible uses various phrases like this. We shouldn't get confused with these things. That this world will come to an end. And just purely from a physics and science point of view, we understand that, uh, that science speaks of the ultimate heat death, when all the energy exchanged in the universe that can have done, will have done, and, and so on, and we're just going to come to a uniform temperature throughout the universe, and so on. Um, now, they suggest that's going to be billions of years in the future. Um... According to Scripture is going to happen sooner than that. <coughs> Jesus said in Matthew twenty four, thirty five, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. You see, really what we're saying there is that matter as we know it is not going to be eternal. Okay? But the words of Jesus they are eternal they're not subject to the physical laws the world that we live in is subject to the laws of entropy the second law of thermodynamics everything is winding down slowing down but jesus words aren't jesus words won't decay they won't grow old mark 13:31 and luke 21:33 also reiterate that and then we're going to see as we move into revelation 21 And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for, and this makes it very, very clear, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And it's interesting when we look at the differences, we'll talk about some of those in a minute, but one of the real clinches for us is in Second Peter, because we're told, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Okay, the, the the word we have in the Greek there, where it speaks about the heavens and the earth shall pass away and the elements shall melt, that we have a Greek word "luo" it means loosened. Uh, it really has this this idea of, for an atomic level, everything just flying apart. Now, it's long been a puzzle for scientists. How an atom can stay together? I'm sure you can remember some of these things from school. You know that we've got positively charged particles and negatively charged and so on, and, and actually in the the nucleus you know, it, it, the like charges repel, so it should just blast apart but it doesn't, things are held together and of course physicists have tried to understand how this works and we've got various suggestions such as atomic glue you can't see it, you can't detect it but it's got to be there because these things don't fly apart, and, and there's all sorts of suggestions put forward as to why but actually really the real answer is found in Colossians. It says, for by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. It says all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things and by Him all things consist. Literally all things are held together because of Jesus. And at the time that God appoints and God chooses, Jesus will allow Everything just to fly apart. Just as an interesting aside, I'm not going to read all this to you at the moment. Uh, You can read a little bit more about this in uh, Dave Roseville's book, uh, Interpreting Origin of Science, if you want. Um, But there's this very interesting discovery um, of late. I mean, it's not new, but it's been around for a while now. That inside our our bodies, and this is not talking about universal science, but just our our bodies, just as one example of this. uh, We have this... Protein, uh, known as laminin. Okay, it's, uh, basically, it's kind of long story short, a protein that holds everything else together. It allows the cells of our body to function and to hold the positions and everything else that they do. Okay, it just, it's incredible, but isn't it interesting the shape of this thing? It's the shape of a cross. Now, some people will just say, oh, it's just coincidence. Okay, fine, believe it's coincidence if you want to. But it's still there. It's still the shape of a cross, and we've got something that is the shape of a cross holding us together, literally, at a cellular level. I think that's just quite interesting. And again, some people make more of that than others, but it's it's there. You can't deny it, and you can say that it's coincidence. But um, I heard it said once that when we speak of coincidence, all it is is God choosing to work anonymously. So we're going to get to this new heavens and new earth, and just to highlight again that there's going to be a distinct difference, because in the new heaven, there's not going to be a sun. And that's going to confuse the uh, the physicists and so on as to how this is all going to work. Nor is going to, there's not going to be a moon either. We're told that God will be its light. It's a very interesting study, maybe one day we'll have a look at that, the whole concept of light itself. But there's not going to be the the light from the moon or the sun. I mean, you, you recognize from the, the days of creation, the that there was light before the sun and the moon were created. In the new earth, there's not going to be any sea. But we find that water is going to proceed from the throne of God and from the Lamb. So it's very, very different than the current earth. Everything we know from Scripture about the new heaven and earth speaks very com- clearly of a completely new creation, specifically designed for the purpose that God intended it to be, and obviously very unlike what now exists. Okay, so now we move on to the very last section of these three things in this closing point of the chapter 20. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So, heaven and earth are now gone. All that's left is this great white throne. This is kind of nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, and arguably this is going to be one of the most terrifying verses in the Bible. Why? Well, because of what we're told. Look at the criteria for judgment here. The criteria is works. People people are going to be judged according to what they have done. And it's interesting because everything that you've ever said, thoughts, felt, or done in actuality, all of this is going to be brought and put on the table. All the good things, all the bad things. And a lot of people think that if they've done more good things than bad things, they'll be fine. Of course, it's a foolish notion. Not even, There's no judge in any legal system in this world that would just allow you to do more good than bad and then we forget the bad. That's not how it works. Nobody's ever judged or sentenced to prison on account of good things they've done or no sentence is ever mitigated because they did some good things. It's purely on the issue of the bad things and if they've broken laws or committed crimes. Well God will be the same. You know, I've said this before, that even for us, even for people that believe in Jesus, that have been born again, that have received the Holy Spirit of God, if we were to be able to put up on here this morning a video of your life, of everything you've ever thought, said, done, felt, you'd probably never ever want to come back here again. You know, and and here we are against like with like-minded people. I remember hearing a preacher say that once. You know that if you're in a situation and you take anybody in this world and you could put their life and play everything, you'd be so embarrassed if people could know all the things you've thought, all the bad things, all the things that. You look back and you regret. And yet, against like-minded sinners we feel like that. What would it be like to stand before the God who created us, the God who is holy, and to have everything brought out? You know what? I am so glad that I am saved by the blood of Jesus. And that when I get to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is not this throne, by the way. We'll talk about that in a moment. When I stand before the judgment seat of Christ... When effectively God says, okay Barry, let's look at your life. He's going to open a book and all it's going to say is just paid in full. All my sin. Everything. And I just, it's overwhelming. Because I know, as we read in Revelation 5, that in the midst of the throne there's a lamb as had been slain. And all my sin was carried by that lamb. And Jesus took every lustful, hatred fills every wrong emotion in my life, in my heart. Everything I've ever said that's been unkind or And Jesus took all of that and it's paid for. And as we stand before the throne, the only issue, the only thing to be addressed is our work as Christians. How have you lived your life as a Christian? Have you been sowing for heaven? Have you been putting your treasure in heaven? And if you have, you're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And you're going to be given rewards. So rather than being condemned or judged, we find ourselves at an awards ceremony where we get to be called out and we're given these great rewards. You know, one of those things we've talked about is those crowns that we get to lay back before Jesus' feet. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful to be there at the judgment seat of Christ, which is again, not this judgment, we'll talk more in a moment just to clarify the differences and details, but as I hear my name called up and I get to go up and receive a crown, the crown of righteousness, that's what I want. That's given to those who have loved His appearing, the Bible says. I certainly, you know, ever since I've started to understand and read the Bible, the whole idea that Jesus really is coming back, that we've got all of these things that are for us, it's it always excited me. You know, that's, that's what I want. I really want that crown. To get to get that crown, be given that crown. And then you walk back to your, your seat, as it were, and then somebody else goes to get their crown for something else. And, but then when everybody's done, then we've got the crowns that we can earn. There won't be any of this comparing one to another and saying... How many did you get? Oh, two. <laughs> that's all. We won't do that because all that's going to happen is we're going to go and lay those crowns at Jesus' feet. And I think that will be one of the most intimate and personal and private moments that we can imagine in this sea, this multitude of people because you will get to lay your crown before Jesus' feet and that is your thank you to Jesus. That's your opportunity to say, for all that he's done for you, thank you. It's like saying, Jesus, I lived my life for you. I I I walked by faith, not by sight. Walking with your spirit. Not of my own self, not of me. I can't boast in that, but all that I did, even this crown, is because of your goodness and I give it to you to say thank you. Just imagine how horrible it would be at that moment if you've lived your life as a Christian and actually, you know, you much prefer to sit and... Watch telly or whatever else. Fill in the blanks. Well, yeah, you know, I'll read my Bible one day and that one day never comes. And and then you're there and everybody else is getting this opportunity this sea of multitude of people to lay their crowns. We sang this morning, crowning with many crowns. You know, and everyone will be laying those crowns before Jesus' feet, and you're there with nothing to give. Can you imagine that feeling? And First Corinthians three tells us that there will be people there. Our works will be assessed, it will be considered as gold, silver or precious stones, the things that are tried by fire and are purified or it will be like wood, hay and stubble, things that if they go through a fire they get burnt up. And Some people's lives as Christians, they've just been sowing to themselves, they're just doing what they want to do and all their work will be burnt up, they'll have nothing of eternal value. They may have had stocks and shares, they may have had a good bank account, they may have had a good job, they may have had a wonderful family, whatever you can think of that you consider success by the world standards. They may have had all of those things, but there before the throne, that won't matter at all. And to be there, and we're told in First Corinthians 3, they'll be saved, yet so is by fire. My paraphrase of that is, that they're there, but by the skin of their teeth. You're there, as we all are by the blood and grace of Jesus Christ, but you've got nothing to say thank you to Jesus with. I can't imagine. It's like going to a party and everyone else in the queue in front of you going into the door has bought a present for the host and you've forgotten to get one. It won't be like the, this is just a little repentance thing here, but there was a wedding some years ago we went to and we'd forgotten to take a present. Well, we didn't forget, it's just we didn't know the person that well. So we'd taken a card and we went to put it on the table and there was a present with no tag on it. And we just left the card by the present. I mean, he just, did you know, I wasn't really intending to deceive them, but they never wrote to say thank you for the present, so <laughs> they probably realised it wasn't from us. But, you know, going to something like that without taking something, uh, that's nothing compared to what it would be like before the throne. So I just encourage you, you know, that's why we need to be living our lives now because what a great opportunity to tell Jesus how much we love him. Okay, so back into Revelation 20 verse 12. People are going to be judged by everything they've said and thought. They won't have that slate wiped clean like we will as Christians. Jesus said, but I say unto you that every idle word... There are many of those, aren't there? The men shall speak; they shall give account thereof in the day of a ju- day of judgment. And you think, well, this is going to take a long time. Well, it's not, God's not in a hurry at this point. We're kind of stepping into eternity. It's not a problem. God can go moment by moment through your life and look at every idle work you said. First Peter four, four and five says this: They, speaking of unbelievers, think it strange that you, talking to Christians, run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Well, even those words will be weighed. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick, the living, and the dead. In Acts chapter 17, we read, In the times of this ignorance, speaking of all that had gone before in the Old Testament, God winked at, God overlooked. But he says, but now, now that the gospel message is clear, now that Jesus has come, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he's appointed a day, in the which he will judge the world in righteousness, but look at this, by the man whom he's ordained. Wherefore he has given assurance unto all men, in that he's raised him from the dead. You see, one of the incredible twists that's going to occur at this moment is, we see the great white throne, we see God sat on his throne. And people are called to give account of their life, of everything they've thought, said and done. And suddenly they look up, and people will recognise the one on the throne because it will be Jesus Jesus is the one to whom all judgment is committed we read in John 5.22 for the father judges no man but has committed all judgment unto the son how many people in their daily lives walk around blaspheming using Jesus' name so casually and suddenly they're going to be standing before him this is why, as I said, this is Probably one of the scariest verses in the Bible that we're judged according or people will be judged according to their works. And we're told the books are open. Well the Bible speaks of a number of books. There's the book of the wars of the Lord in Numbers twenty one. There's a book in Psalm fifty six where we're told that God records our tears. Isn't that lovely? You know, some some of us may have books for our children where we record memorable moments and things, and but God loves you so much He records every time you cry knows what you're feeling in your hearts. Psalm 69 speaks about the book of the living. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, Thine eyes did see my substance yet being imperfect, and in thy book all my members were written. So God has a book which had everything about us, our DNA code, everything, all written down before we were even formed. In Daniel 12 it speaks there, about the time when Michael's going to stand up for Israel, the great prince of thy people. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. So a number of these books that are there, You know, I think one of the books that will be there will be the Bible. I believe the Bible is the Lamb's book of life. We'll talk more about that when we get into chapter 22. And we're told that the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. So, you've spoken about hell already being like this holding place for those that have departed, for those who haven't but their trust in Jesus. Hades, Sheol, the pit, those names are used interchangeably in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man, again we're told, according to their works. I mean, it really is, just a, their thoughts, this is just John MacArthur made these comments. They're judged according to their thoughts, Luke 8, Romans 2. they judged according to their words, we said that already Matthew 12. Their actions, Matthew 16, they're going to be compared to God's perfect standard and holy standard. And people are going to be found wanting. It's already been decreed. It also implies that there's degrees of punishment in hell. There's a number of verses that imply that as well, but not that any of them are going to be less terrible than any others. And then we told, thought, uh, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You know, in Gethsemane, Jesus pleaded three times, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was saying, if there's another way to bring salvation, then I'll, I'll, I'll take it. And Jesus was saying he didn't want to have to endure and go through having the sin and the iniquity of man laid upon him. And he pleaded with God three times, but there was no other way. So Jesus willingly went to the cross. Dave Hunt says this, he says, if we cannot trust God's threat of hell, we cannot believe his promise of heaven. You see, at this point, God is not going to cave in and suddenly say to people, well, you know what, I guess you weren't that bad after all. Come to heaven. It's not going to happen. And and if if we can't trust that God has been true in the the judgment and the the threat of hell, then why should we believe that his promise of heaven is, is any more secure? In a strange way, God is going to be glorified by those that go to hell. Not because he wants them to. The Bible says in Ezekiel that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. God would much rather that people would repent. I mean, God is long-suffering, Peter tells us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus died on the cross, we're told, not just for yours or my sin, but we're told that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And as I said before, nobody will go to hell because of their sin. They will go to hell on account of refusing the only remedy. It's like there's there's an incurable disease, but then there's a vaccination that's found. If if that was the case, nobody need die if the vaccination is there. But if you choose not to take the vaccination, then you'll be subject to the effects of the disease. Well, that's what sin is. Sin is really an incurable disease. And yet, Jesus fell away. And if we put our trust in Jesus, then we are cleansed and healed, and that threat of sin no longer applies. But for anybody that chooses not to take that option, there is no other way. There is salvation only in the name of Jesus. We said last week that one of the horrible things about hell is the fact that it's uh, removing, it's the absence of the presence of God. Even in Hades, the the holding place, for want of a better term, that exists at the moment, Psalm 139 tells us that God's presence can be felt. You know, we all have a thirst, and what will make the lake of fire so horrific is the absence of God's presence. God has ordained our bodies that we would need water, and so... At the moment on earth we have the cycle. we have water. God has made the remedy for that thirst. He's made that possible. Interestingly enough, the new heaven and the new earth, as we said earlier, are not going to have a sea. And God, we're told, is going to satisfy our thirst because Jesus will be the living water. And quite how the mechanics of that will work, we'll talk a little bit about more next week. But in Luke 16, that rich man in hell Remember, he cries out for water to be put on his tongue. And by this point, his physical body was gone; he's just a soul. Why that request? Well, he thought that it might satisfy him. You know, through his life, he'd sought the pleasures of life to satisfy that thirst, but unable to satisfy it, he now finds himself in hell. But that thirst still remained, as it will for all eternity. And so, in a sense, it's very much deluded. He asked that question about, you know, could Lazarus go and get some water and put it on my tongue? Hoping that it would help, but even if a request had been granted, it wouldn't have helped him. You see, we have been made to have fellowship with our Creator. And we have a natural longing and desire for that. Interestingly enough, I had a an email from somebody yesterday asking me to pray about a strange situation. This is a person that would say they would reject God, they don't believe the Bible. They don't believe that what I believe is true. They think I'm wrong. And yet they sent me an email asking me to pray. Isn't it strange? You see, we, we have that knowledge and that thirst. But when the possibility of satisfying that thirst is removed for eternity, it's more than we can even begin to imagine. Chuck Misler said this, he said, if we could see sin as God sees it, we would understand the need for a place like hell. That brings us to the end of this chapter. We shall carry on next week in chapter 21, God willing. Let's just bow our hearts. Oh, Father, I just thank you for this time, this morning, as we've been able to look into these things and help us to understand, Lord, the reality of these things. Although all that seems real at the moment the tangible things, the physical elements of this life, Lord, so often dominate. Your word makes it clear that that is not true reality. And Lord, still the most important thing in time, space, and eternity is our relationship with you. So Father, please, help us to understand these things, help us to apply them to our lives, help us, Lord, to live, Lord, sowing to the Spirit, Lord, laying up our treasure in heaven. And Lord, if there is even the half doubt that we are not yet saved, then Lord, stir us and Lord, don't allow us to move until we have committed our life to you. Because Lord, this is about eternity. And Lord, all the things of this life will soon seem so irrelevant. Father, help us as we speak to our friends, our family, our neighbours who don't know you. Because Lord, we don't want anyone to endure standing first of all before that great white throne, let alone, Lord, the prospect of an eternity without you. So, Father, again, just press these things upon our hearts. Lord, let us keep growing by your grace. And be with us as we go from here today. We ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.